Thank you, team. What if you woke up one morning to this sound, and you go to answer the door, and there's two men in black suits, dark sunglasses. They ask your name. You tell it to them. Say, who wants to know? They don't answer. One of them reaches for a cell phone, holds it up to his ear, and says, we found him. And in the moments that follow, you learn that you are actually, you're actually an heir to one of the wealthiest families in the United States, entitled to the billions, and all of that is now available to you. From that moment on, everything was going to be different, right? You feel the back of your head, your fingers roll over that, that lump that's been there since you were a child. And all of a sudden you start remembering, oh, the accident. Growing up in the orphanage and never knowing who your parents really were. Could it be? Could this actually be true? That's the kind of thing that happens in TV, movies, and books, right? doesn't happen in reality. When I was a kid, I used to dream about that kind of thing happening to me, especially in those moments when I wasn't too happy about being a part of the family that I was in. You know what I mean? But here in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 19, that's exactly the type of scenario that Paul says has happened to you if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 18, he's telling us about all the things that have happened, all of the things that Jesus came and accomplished. But then here in verse 19, he zeroes in on the implications for our identity. And if you haven't already turned there, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? We're going to be in verse 19. Now, I realized last week that Pastor Jim was in Ephesians chapter 3. And that it has to do with a scheduling thing. I was hoping to finish chapter 2 the week before, and I didn't get to it because I realized there's too much here, and so we just went with it. So we're backtracking a little bit, and then next week we're going to jump ahead a little bit, but that's okay. We don't want to miss anything that God has for us here in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word together? Beginning in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Notice those first two words. So then. What does he mean by so then? Well, he's telling us that there's more good news to come. He's not finished yet. Kind of like on Christmas morning, 
You've unwrapped all of your presents. You're going to pile high in front of you. Huge grin on your face. When dad turns the corner and appears in the door with a massive present and says, there's one more for you to open, kid. This is too good to be true. It's amazing. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better. Paul says, all of these things that I have been telling you about what Christ has accomplished, it actually has another massive result. Well, what has Christ accomplished? Well, in the last several verses, he's been telling us that Christ brought near those who were far, right? How did he do it? Well, he did it by abolishing the law of commandments, by creating this new single humanity when it was once divided, and reconciling both Jew and Gentile to God, and then preaching peace to the near and to the far. What he's laid on us so far, it's astonishing, isn't it? They said it couldn't be done. But it has been done. The dividing wall of hostility, it has been torn down and Christ has made a way for human beings to find peace with each other. And more importantly, peace with God. But there's more. Do you understand what being brought near actually is? means do we do we comprehend what having a restored relationship with god means for our identity how it transforms our existence with life-altering implications two major things that we need to talk about today two major things what christ has accomplished first means that you and i now belong We now belong. Look at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Remember that you were once cut off. On the outside looking in, right? Separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise, he said. No hope without God in the world. Kind of like Jason Bourne, we were, we were rootless, wandering around with a kind of amnesia, not really knowing who we are, where we belong, not knowing why we're really here, no real direction on what we're supposed to be doing or what our lives are all about. But that's all in the past. If, if you are now in Christ... If you and I have recognized our need for a Savior, we've confessed our sins, and we've placed our trust in the only one who can bring hope, then that's who you and I used to be. That's who we used to be. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but, there's that word again, right? But. There's that word, that glorious word that we saw in Ephesians 2, 4, but God. And then we saw it again in verse 13, but now in Christ. And now in Ephesians 2, 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and fellow members of the household of God. Paul's saying, you now belong. You now belong. You've not only been invited to the party at that palatial oceanfront country club, you're now a lifetime member. It's amazing. And remember, when he says you here, that he's not just talking about you as an individual. 
He's talking about the collective body of Christ followers. He's talking about all those who are in Christ, all those who were on the outside looking in and have now been brought inside. He's talking about, he's talking about us as the church. This is the you. How do we belong? Two ways. One, we're part of God's kingdom. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints. Remember, the Gentiles weren't part of the kingdom. They weren't part of God's people. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, right? Imagine what it must have been like being on the outside of God's people back in the day. When God's people came marching into town, you heard of how their God had given them victory time and time again over their enemies. And now they're knocking at your door. In 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines were on the outside. On the outside, and verse 4 records their reaction when they heard Israel was coming for them with the Ark of the Covenant. This is what it says in chapter 4, starting in verse 4 of 1 Samuel. So the people went to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us. For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage. Be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. It's kind of like this in the moment of terror where you realize there's really no hope here, but let's rally the troops and let's give it our all because we know we're going to die. What a terrifying thing it must have been to realize that the all-powerful God of the universe is against you. How awful it would have been to not have had a relationship with him. To not be able to trust in the promises that he made. To be cut off outside of that group of the special ones. And Paul says to the church, not anymore. Not anymore. Do do you see what good news this is? You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens. The people in Paul's day, they knew how important citizenship was. It set you apart and ensured special protections. Being a citizen of Rome, that saved Paul from a brutal beating in Acts 22. Roman soldiers about to give him the flogging that he was going to remember. And then he says this in Acts 22:25, "Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned?" And almost immediately that centurion, he is filled with fear. Why? 
Because you don't do that to Roman citizens without a trial. They can't be treated as non-citizens. He was entitled to certain privileges and protections because of his citizenship. There are rights and privileges that come with citizenship, right? Just like back then, we have them today as we experience U.S. citizenship. It's a wonderful thing. It's almost priceless. So many people desire it, would almost do anything to get it. Roman Empire was at its peak in Paul's day. Its power, its splendor, its glory, it could be seen just about everywhere. At that point in history, there was no sign of of any decline in Rome. We're looking back now, and we know how the story unfolds. They didn't have any of that. No sign of decline, no indication that Rome could ever fall. And yet, Paul tells these, these new Christians, he says, you're citizens of a kingdom that is far superior to that of Rome. It's not limited by geography, color, nationality, race. What kingdom is this? Well, it's God's kingdom. It's an international kingdom, actually. It's a realm where God rules in the hearts of his people, where they enjoy the privileges that they never would have enjoyed before. They enjoy hope and peace and acceptance and love like the world has never known. For Paul, this citizenship it was far more significant, far more valuable than his Roman citizenship. I love America. And the older I get, the more I learn to, have learned to appreciate what it means to be an American. Yes, we have done plenty of things that are wrong, and yet there is so much good that has been done. As I consider those blessings that our forefathers, they fought, they bled, they died for, I just find myself just filled with kind of an increasing sense of pride and patriotism. If you drive by my house at night, you will see the LED lights shining up on old glory, which stands 24-7, because it's such a good thing. What God has blessed us with, with our country. And yet as good as it is to be a part of this land of the free and home of the brave, there's something that I belong to. Something that I belong to that's far more precious. I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. You and I, if we've placed our trust in Christ, we are citizens of God's kingdom. What Christ has accomplished means you and I are now members. It's amazing. That's one sense in which we belong. There's another sense. We also belong as part of God's family. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, fellow members of the household of God. You know, citizenship, it's one thing. But to be a member of a family... That's something far more intimate, isn't it? As a citizen, I don't have access to the President of the United States. Well, maybe on Twitter, right? But I don't know if I want to go there. It's not always a safe place. As a member of the household of God, you and I are His children. He is our Father. 
And I don't know how accessible your father was or how good your father was, but I'm telling you, if you've placed your trust in Christ, you have the best father ever. There is no one more powerful. His resources are limitless. Cattle on a thousand hills, right? And there's no one more just. Sometimes when you're growing up, you can look at your parents and you say, I don't agree with that rule, or I don't agree, you're coming down on me way too hard. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes we as parents, we, we don't get it quite right. God never gets it wrong. You have a good father. And he's not, he's not out there floating around somewhere. He is here for you. You have been brought into the family. We've been adopted. Together, we're not just neighbors, you and I. Our relationship is different, isn't it? As we're brought into the family, something has changed here. We're not just, we're not just teammates. We're not just fellow country club members. But because of what Christ has accomplished, we're now brothers and sisters. We're to treat each other with family, not like so many, so many times family often plays out, but like a good family. The ones that you see, saw on TV, like back in the 50s, where they actually care about each other. We're supposed to be a family that, that loves each other, that shows affection for one another. You might have no blood relatives left on earth. You might have no one to go have Thanksgiving dinner together with. And yet, if you've placed your trust in Christ, you're part of God's family. You have a father that loves you like no other. You have brothers and sisters who will love and will care for you. Now, you might say, wait a second, Jared. I've, I've been around the block here. I've been to a church or two and I've been hurt so many times. In fact, every church I've gone to, I've been hurt. These people that are supposed to be my family, supposed to be loving to me, supposed to be caring to me. I don't know if I want to hang out with those people anymore. I get that. For sure. Absolutely. I have been hurt by people in the church. You have been hurt by people in the church. You'll probably be hurt by me. But God is working in all of us, isn't he? This is a place for the sick where God has gathered all kinds of people people with all sorts of problems, and he's brought them together. He saved them, and he's transforming them. The, the fancy word is sanctifying them, right? And it's a process. We're moving in that direction. And as we move in that direction, sometimes we sting each other. Sometimes we snap. Sometimes we bite. But God has promised to continue the work that he has began in us and to carry it out into completion. We fail each other often. And yet this is a place that when we fail each other, we have an opportunity to practice gospel forgiveness toward one another. We have opportunities to show each other and to show the world outside that yes, there are problems that are happening here. Yes, so-and-so did that, and that was a terrible thing that that person did. And yet, something different is happening here. What is this grace that's being extended what is this? They offended me, so I'm pursuing them. And I'm not pulling apart. I'm going for them. And I'm, I'm moving towards reconciliation here. I'm moving to have the relationship restored. And yes, I've been wrong to such an extent that everyone else would say, no, that's unforgivable. You don't go back there. And yet, I look to the cross and I see where Christ forgave me, how much he forgave me. And I said, can I not forgive 
this little thing that has been done wrong against me. Together, as we stick together, as we pull together, and as we rally around the cross, we learn more and more what it took for Christ to forgive us, right? And all of a sudden, our worship just skyrockets because we're blown away by who our great God is. The author of Hebrews wrote, Let us consider how to stir one another up toward to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And that happens all the time, right? We hurt each other, and, well, I guess it's time to look for a new church. That's not what God wants for his church. He wants us to He wants us, when we hurt each other, to look at the cross and say, Christ forgave me. I want to move towards forgiveness here. And yeah, that might mean several long conversations, some very awkward, difficult conversations, and yet those conversations glorify God. We're a family. We're weird. Some of us can be annoying at times. Sometimes we offend each other. Sometimes we smell. It's true. But Christ died that we might be brought together. And gathering regularly together here is something he has called us to do. And it demonstrates to that watching world the awesome power of the gospel. And it's, it's also vitally important, isn't it? It's vitally important for our survival. Because when we get hurt and we turn and run, we allow that, that unforgiveness and that bitterness to take root in our hearts. And that's not driving us closer to God, but farther away. What Christ has accomplished means you and I now belong. You, you and I are now part of the kingdom. We're also part of the family. But there's more. What Christ has accomplished not only means you belong, but that you and I are now God's dwelling place. Paul likens God's people to a a building. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Notice the building architecture terminology here. Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. One of the key rallying points, one of the key identity symbols for the people of God in the past has been the temple in Jerusalem. The temple that King Herod built, it was, well, it was spectacular. It was amazing. It was a place that the people looked to, to, to get a sense of the visible presence of God among them. And it, it brought them together. But what about this new people? What about these people that that Christ is bringing together, this new humanity that he has made? Where do they look to for God's presence now? And Paul tells us that we, the church, are actually now that temple. Emmanuel, God with us, that takes on a whole new meaning here, doesn't it? Because God doesn't just come near, he comes and makes his dwelling place inside the foundation of this dwelling place well that's that's the apostles 
the prophets, the forerunners whose teaching led the people to embrace the gospel, become part of the church in the first place. They were the ones, we talked about this many, many weeks ago, they were the ones whom God had chosen to work through and inspire and reveal the mystery of salvation. Now there's some people out there who will claim to be apostles and they'll claim to be prophets today. We better be careful. And make no mistake that we cannot equate them to these people that Paul is referring to here. They can't be the same people. What Paul's talking about here is, is that small, very select group that Jesus called and gave authority to to bring his message into the world. And, and and one of the distinctions was that they had actually been first-hand witness to Christ after he rose from the grave. The things that these few individuals taught were foundational to the existence of the church. And without their teaching, well, we don't have church. Where do we find that teaching? We find it right here in the New Testament words of Scripture. These are essential. They are vital. They are precious to us because they're the foundation that we stand on. I love what John Stott wrote here. Just as a foundation cannot be tap tampered with once it has been laid, he's talking very practically here, you, you don't tamper with that foundation once it's been laid and the superstructure is being built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is, is inviolable and cannot be changed by any additions, subtractions, or modifications offered by teachers who claim to be apostles or prophets today. The church stands or falls by its loyal dependence on the foundation truths which God revealed to his apostles and prophets and which are now preserved in the New Testament scriptures. God's word is precious to us. We respect it, we accept it, we follow it, we obey it, we live and die by it. But change it, add to it, subtract to it, manipulate it so that it says what we would like it to say, and the foundation of the church crumbles beneath our feet. Paul tells us that there's a foundation to the building. He also says that there's a there's a very, very key piece. There's a cornerstone to this structure. An essential piece that the whole structure, its weight leans upon. And all the other pieces, they hold together. You take out this piece and everything falls apart. And Paul says, that's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the cornerstone of the church. He's the one who brings it all together. And because he's there, he allows it to rise the end of verse 20 says Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together it grows into a holy temple in the Lord Christ is the one who joins us together isn't he this new dwelling place of God is built founded on the teaching of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone is Christ it's necessary. Take him out of that picture. Push him to the side, out of the limelight, out of the focal point. 
and members in our church stop growing. They crumble and they spin off and bring harm to the whole structure. Christ is key. That's why we hold so tightly to him. That's why every Sunday we're proclaiming the gospel of Christ. This isn't, it's basic, but it's essential for every single day of our lives. I remember being up at a camp, at an Awana camp when I was a kid, and the preacher was down there and he was preaching the gospel message. And I remember walking away and thinking, man, I'm so tired of hearing this. This is so academic. I I accepted Christ when I was three years old. I don't need this anymore. (laughs) How wrong was I? How wrong was I? The gospel is key. It is essential. Christ and his exaltation. And that's where we got to be. Christ, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, joins us all together. The teaching of the apostles and prophets, it's foundational. Christ is a cornerstone. Well, what are you and I? What are you and I? Well, we're the stones, not the rolling stones, but stones. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We're the building blocks that make up this organic structure which serves as a dwelling place for God. Notice Ephesians uh, verse 22 in chapter 2. He says, in him, he says, you also. That's kind of a curious thing, isn't it? Is he talking to those Christians who were just, <laughs> you, guys were the, you guys were the drug dealers, you guys were the gang members, even you guys... Well, he doesn't have them in mind, though they would be included. But he's specifically talking about those Gentile Christians, right? Those who were on the outside looking in, those who had no part of this before. Now you also, you're in. In fact, not only are you being let in, not only can they cross that wall, remember the wall around the temple with those signs that said, don't cross this or you're going to die, they can cross that now. They can gain access. They, but not only can they gain access, they are being built up as part of that holy temple. They're, they themselves are part of that dwelling place. God doesn't dwell in fancy buildings. He dwells in his people. Two magnificent buildings stood in that day. One was in Jerusalem. It's inner sanctum reserved for the holy presence of Almighty God. This other temple, though, stood in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. No big deal. Neither contained God. They both stood vacant. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. His dwelling place is within his people. And they're clumped together in local churches, meeting this very moment all over the place, scattered throughout the world. And God says, that's where I want to dwell. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Just when you thought 
It couldn't get any better. Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility. He brought peace between the near, the far, peace between you and God, peace between others. But wait, there's more. What Christ has accomplished means you belong. You're citizens of the kingdom, brought into the family of God. Not only do you belong, you are now the dwelling place. Christ's church is the dwelling place for God. Not only did he come near, he lives inside. As you and I continue to live in a world that is searching for answers, it's searching for peace, searching for hope, for satisfaction, for meaning, in a world that's constantly dividing, building up walls, filled with anger, filled with greed, filled with hostility. It's leaning upon inadequate philosophies. It's looking to temples that are empty in that world. Let's be the church that Christ made us to be. Let's be that church. Let's show the world by our love for each other, a unifying love that surpasses color, it surpasses race, nationality, status, wealth, intelligence. Let's show them a love for each other that proves that Christ really did tear down that wall. That he really did create for himself a new humanity a kingdom, a family, a dwelling place like the world has never seen before. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, your goodness to us knows no bounds. We are forever in your debt a debt that could never be paid by us. All we can do, Lord, is worship you. We give our very lives to you and we say, Lord, we are nothing without you. And yet you've made us everything because of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we want to worship you. We're not just with our mouths as we sing or play instruments, Lord. We want to worship you with our lives. Every aspect of our lives, as we're at work, we're at the grocery store, we're on the playground, we're at school, we're at home, in our living rooms, with our families. May our lives worship you. May our lights shine bright. The light of Christ that exists inside of us, may that shine so brightly. As the world looks at us, they stand and they're bewildered. And they're pointed to the great God who did it all. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this church. Thank you for bringing us together as a family, as fellow citizens, and as your dwelling place. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.